going beyond the headlines, getting to the heart of the story. Calgary Today with Joe McFarland on 770 CHQR. We're going to start and finish the show today talking about talking. We'll start with swearing and the benefits of having friends who cuss and also the changing culture around that salty language. We'll finish up on a fun note. Ever talk to your dog and realize they're just not getting it? Kind of like this. Do you speak any English? Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? Those stories and more on the Calgary Today podcast. Hope you enjoy it. All righty, my friends. I promise I'm not going to swear. It's hard to do sometimes because I'm a farm kid. I grew up in an atmosphere where if you hit the hammer the wrong way or if you broke down or that kind of thing, there were a few creative ways of swearing. We'll call it that. And as I mentioned right off the hop, on Facebook the last few days, I've seen a couple of links passed around with the headline, Psychologists urge folks to be friends with those who swear a lot. And I thought to myself, there's another reason to be friends with me. That being said, one of the interesting side notes in all of it, contrary to the popular belief, it's not the less educated or dumb people who swear a lot. Now, one of the people who has been reading into this is Dr. Timothy Jay at the Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts, Dr. J, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Glad to be here. So is it true that I should be making friends with people who swear a lot? Well, uh, probably not if you're a Mormon. <laughs> I mean, it, these things are transactional. I, um, you know, I'm, I'm one of the birds of a feather flock together. So I think if you're a person who likes and trust uh, other people who swear a lot, that, that might be good advice. But, it, you know, for if your sensibilities are different, you know, if you're highly religious or a lot of people with sexual anxieties, they don't, they don't like swearing. Uh, so, I, I, you know, I, it's, not, it's not a universal, but mm. I, I, think that, I think the variable underlying this is that people who tend to express their feelings um, openly, like unchecked, are are more likely to swear uh, than somebody who's you know holding back, right. and that's why they're uh, the people who let go with their emotions are are a little more trustworthy. I know that there's some thought out there that just because they swear, somebody swears a lot, it's an idea that maybe they don't have the vocabulary. But that's not necessarily the case, is it? No, that's a myth I took on. Uh, directly, I I knew that wasn't true, and anybody who studies uh, speech knows that uh, fluency is the key here. It's it's really the opposite that people who um, are highly fluent with language are able to generate lots of swear words. That we did that study where we had people say as many swear words as they could say in a minute, say as many animal names as they could say in a minute and say as many other words that begin with a particular letter, like words that begin with A. And what we found was the people who could generate, um, all of these things were intercorrelated, so that people who could generate a lot of animals, a lot of A words, uh, could generate a lot of swear words. So 
as fluency goes up, the ability to generate swear words goes up. It's not the opposite. People, people with a poor vocabulary don't just insert swear words when they can't find a word. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the opposite of that. You know, fluency breeds fluency. It's a fascinating tale in a sense. Being the farm kid that I am is I'm I'm very fluent in swear. Um, but one of the funny <laughs> things I found about it is maybe it made me when I was younger, when I was a kid, my parents always used to say, Don't swear, it's bad and, and that kind of thing. But I found I became more forthcoming as I began to sort of uh, allow myself to not have that filter in place and is there something to be said about sort of having the filter there for the right opportunities maybe yeah yeah you hit it it's um like having different styles of language like having different styles of clothing so you need a whole wardrobe to fit the occasion so you you need to know when to swear and when not to swear and i think that's a key thing especially for adolescents growing up is you know well you can say this with your buddies in the in the locker room but you know you can't say this at work you know you're mm-hmm. going to get in trouble you can't talk to customers like that but so it's important to know when to turn it on and when to turn it off that's the key thing and and certainly the setting and the people that are around you as well as sometimes i get myself into a little bit of trouble not realizing that there might be young ones around who might be a yeah. a little impressionable as well yeah i i play noontime hockey and uh on Monday, one of the guys' daughters played with us, and uh, it was noticeably <laughs> quieter <laughs> than, a, than it usually is. And in fact, one guy swore on the bench and he apologized. And that that would never happen with a you know a bunch of guys who wouldn't apologize for swearing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, I think that that's a key thing, especially if you're at work. You know, you're in a hierarchy, and uh, you know you don't swear up the hierarchy. Usually, the swearing comes from the top down. So <laughs> it's important to figure out what the peck you know where the what the pecking order is in any organization very true and the one thing the other thing that i wanted to mention here is one of the things that i've really noticed in the last few years is is the social acceptance of it and in particular primetime tv you really start to see it now is even on regular channels you start to see the the breadth of words the s word is is, is a good example is you're starting to see that more and more in sort of the popular culture and it's not bleeped out as much as you might think yeah, I've been I've been studying that since the 1980s, just recording those kinds of things, and I think the key to this is that um, that the media are very competitive. So you have you have the cable channels competing with the broadcast channels, and they're all competing with the internet channels. Mm-hmm. So as the I'll use the term realistic. As the language becomes more realistic, like something like The Wire or The Sopranos, where you're, you know, looking at street gangs and and gangsters, you know, the language that to seem realistic is going to is going to mirror that. So the broadcast television seems to um, to uh, pick up on that, you know, and become a little more. a little more open, a little more offensive than it was. And that that's a trend that's been, you know, in the last 30, 40 years, that's, that's been happening. And I, I think the other effect we have on using um, coarse language or offensive language is the influence of the Internet. That's, uh, I've been looking at um, in, uh, offensive language on the Internet, and you get the, some of the interesting things there you find in public, too. You know, it's like, well, people tend to use media that um, 
have their similar like moral values. So people who don't like swearing, they don't like uh, adversarial um, websites where people are p- making fun of each other, and you know. So there's a kind of a moral order that develops there too. But I, but I think you're, I think you're right. We're not. I wouldn't say we're going to hell in a handbasket. No. Um, but there is a there is a, a measurable um, increase in swearing in in uh, in our media, and yeah. we're exposed to it more. And so it seems like it's acceptable. Yeah, it's desensationalized, I guess, if that's the right term in a sense. The one thing that I can promise is that I won't be swearing on this program because I like our license a little too much. But uh, Dr. Timothy Jay at the Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts, thank you so much for the time today. Well, I'm darn glad to be here, <laughs> and you have a darn nice day. Darn nice, darn, 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 right? Uh, it's, uh, it's a fantastic discussion that way. Uh, in terms of... The, the way you use it kind of deciphers all, and the text lines really lit up, and some were fun uh, and really highlighted the point that it's all about the context that you're using it in, right? It's not a, if you're aiming it at someone to be hateful or spiteful or whatever, then you're probably in the wrong. But if it's being used as an adjective, I say game on. There's, I think there's, Two words that I don't use. I'm just not comfortable enough. I actually grew up on in a, in a farm setting that I was told, clean up your language. I didn't ever have the bar of soap treatment by any stretch. But as I got older, I realized that, and my parents allowed it. And it kind of allowed me to get rid of that uh, funnel between my brain and my mouth, which can be good and can be bad. But it's a fascinating take. I'll read some texts coming up in just a minute. This is Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. Gare texts in, look up George Carlin's seven dirty words you can't say on TV. Some words are actually okay now. That was one of the the things that I mentioned with Dr. J just a couple of minutes ago was, What's been fascinating to me over the years of being involved in the media is what we could get away, what we could not get away with at any time of the day 15 years ago versus what we can get away with now has changed. I wouldn't say drastically. But I would say that it has changed in terms of what's been allowable now. And all of a sudden, I'll use the S word as the example, is you see that now in nighttime TV and not just at you know midnight, but also 7.05. It's not every channel. And I don't think we've been dumbed down by it. I don't think that we've we've changed or as the doctor said we haven't gone uh down the highway to hell i think some people still do think that it's a bad thing and it's and and that's to each their own i try not to swear as much as i can especially around kids that being said in social settings as i said i'm a bit of it's not even trucker mouth it's a farmer mouth and it's hard to get away from that so which kind of surprises me in the sense of as someone who's been in front of a microphone now for 13 years 
I'm surprised I haven't slipped. And maybe it's just my brain has figured out, okay, when there's a microphone around you, don't do it. But there are those situations that I've sat there and I replied to uh, Christian, I think was the one who texted just a little while ago. And I thought to myself, there have been times, especially when politicians are in the room and you know it's a bold-faced lie or it's a mistruth, as some will call it, where I really want to swear at them. And there's been a few texts that have come in over the course of my tenure here on Calgary today where people have said, Joe, we really want the unedited version of that interview. And I sit there and go, I wish there was an unedited version of the interview. Because, yeah, there are moments where you, you really want to swear a little bit. Gordy texts in, I enjoy passionate people and I have found that they swear more at appropriate times. To which I agree. I think a lot of people, as I said, even for myself, my baby sister did the same thing. She swore that she would never swear at the age of like eight or nine. She said, I'm never going to do it. And she turned or she said or swore that she'd never she wouldn't do it before the age of 18, something like that. And she's a fairly shy, reserved young lady. And the minute that she took that filter off. All of a sudden, it's every fifth word. And I think she's just making up for lost time. But it's kind of it's been kind of hilarious to listen to at the same time, especially from from someone you don't expect it from. There's a few people around the the radio station as well that you when they say a swear word, it's what? Everybody knows that person. That one that just kind of throws you for a loop. We could go on for days about this topic, but we won't. Coming up before the end of the show today, we will have another chance for you to uh, beat the box office to go see Il ne- uh, a great show, Il Devo, coming to town in March. And I'm just putting the finishing touches on your cue to call. So be cognizant of that. That'll be coming up before 6 o'clock. So much more still to come here on Calgary today. This is 770 CHQR. How do we get to the bottom of this issue surrounding math? And I know Danielle's talked about it a little bit, but it was at the council or at the uh, Calgary Board of Education table with the Board of Trustees yesterday and wanted to bring in Sydney Smith, who's the acting superintendent of learning for the CBE to dive more into what happened around the table yesterday. Uh, Sydney, thanks for the time this afternoon. Well, you're quite welcome. When it comes to what was talked about at uh, at around the uh, the CBE board table yesterday it, clearly it's just one of those uh, it, it's sort of a I don't want to call it a, a formatic thing but it is recommended that the board of trustees approve the annual education results report and the three-year education plan seems pretty standard run-of-the-mill stuff but at the end of the day it does have an impact on students and the way they're learning and and when it comes to math in particular I'm wondering are there any changes or things that you have in mind that can maybe up the the averages a little bit for those who are uh, that are struggling and in, in one of the in one of the topics that maybe we've uh, we've had some uh, opportunities that we found. Sure. So um, as you know from listening to um, the information coming out of the boardroom yesterday, part of our three-year education plan um, has four strategies that we are focusing on going forward for the next three years. And one of those strategies is actually a mathematics strategy. This is our second year in the Calgary Board with a mathematics strategy, and there have been some changes um, 
in our strategy moving forward from what we've learned um, in the past year. So one of the things that we have um, in our math strategy is what we call a math coach. And we have a number of, of staff members, 31 FTE altogether, who are assigned in half-time allotments to uh, schools whose math um, marks on their um, PATs, so their provincial achievement tests, weren't where we would want them to be. And the role of that coach is to work alongside math teachers in that particular school to help with um, best instructional practice in the classroom to support students. So that's one piece of the math strategy. We had that as part of last year's math strategy. The difference this year is that we have some additional FTE that we have allotted to that process. Is there something to be said about getting or going even younger? And one of the things that I've I've heard from different parents is that they're they feel like their kid is behind so early on in the math side of things that by the time they get to the PATs in grade six, they're so far behind because they're still, you know, it's almost like an English idea where you're reading at a grade three level even though you're in grade six. There's almost a, a synergy to uh, to mathematics as well. So I apologize if I didn't make it clear. Our, our math coaches are working with kindergarten to grade nine. Understood. Okay, so okay. It, it does span that whole gamut and are working with, with schools. Some of our schools are K-4, some of them are K-6. Um, so across that whole uh, range of grade levels, we have math coaches deployed. Gotcha. Completely understood now. And- and you're right, um, we need to have the building blocks, that structural piece for mm-hmm. students as they come through the grades for them to be successful as they move on through math. Is there something to be said as well for parents? Is there a strategy in place or is there some sort of fallback for parents who are feeling like, especially in the easy stuff is the easy stuff, I guess, in a sense, you know, the one plus one and that kind of thing. But there comes a point where uh, as the as the kids get older that they are almost outperforming where their parents are at because all of a sudden what they thought was grade 12 math is now being taught at a grade six or seven level. So many of our schools over the course of a school year would have a math night for parents. Mm -hmm. And that's an opportunity for parents to come in and speak with teachers about the math curriculum and what kinds of supports and what kinds of things they can be doing at home with students to support them in their math. Um, I would also say that um, many students over the course, just as general, sorry, many staff members over the course of the year update their IRIS profile or their D2L profile or any of those kinds of things with information for parents about what students are learning at that particular time in a class and parents can follow along with that as well. It's one of those things where it's uh, the student has to be bought in, the parents have to be bought in as well. They all they all have the opportunity to be informed and on, in the same wavelength as the teacher, in a sense, and it's just a matter of making sure that all the pieces are are together, in a sense. Right. So, so we're a partnership, and we all need to be working together to help students be successful. And we understand that there are some parents for whom um, math at the upper grades is not their not their forte. 
and they're not they're not necessarily going to be able to teach their student the math as they go forward, and that's okay. But there are still some things that they can be doing at home that will support their students. And working with teachers to keep in touch is is one of those ways. It's going to be something that I'm sure we're going to be keeping an eye on in the uh, months ahead for sure. And certainly uh, just one piece of the uh, education puzzle. Uh, Sydney, thank you so much for the time this afternoon. You're very welcome. Sydney Smith is the acting superintendent of learning for the Calgary Board of Education. I remember at some point during, uh, I can't remember, it was mid-2000s, and I had just gone through a year of university accounting and did a bunch of math classes and compared it to the math that my baby sister was doing in grade eight or nine, I think. They were very similar, which is why I have empathy for parents now who are being tasked with helping with homework that they don't understand because it's not elementary math anymore. That's probably a big reason why math is, is not to go back to Jim Prentice, but math is hard. It's Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. A lot of attention's being paid in Calgary Court Center over the course of this week as the trial for Edward Downey continues. He's accused of first-degree murder and the deaths of Sarah Bailey and her five-year-old daughter, Talia Marsman, back in the summer of 2016. It captured a lot of people's attention, captured a lot of imagination. And to get the latest on what happened during the trial today, we're joined now by Global's Nancy Hickst. Nancy, uh, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Thanks for having me. Let's get the latest on day three of the trial. It began with cross-examination of the witness we talked about yesterday, but it has evolved quite a bit since then. Uh, Let's talk about today and and what we've heard in court. I got to tell you that today has been so emotional like every day is emotional the day one especially yesterday somewhat but um like they there is at one point today where justice hughes had to take a break she took an adjournment because there was audible sobs and family members were crying but even members of the general public were crying and this is this was in response to um an older retired man he was testifying that he was looking out his window in Panorama on July 11th, 2016. And he said he was retired, so he was home. You know, they, they were sitting, having lunch. Uh, that's what his wife said. Um, but this man, he testified that he saw a gentleman take a little girl out of a car and take her across the road to another car. And he said that he saw the man was carrying a, a red suitcase. Um, when he was walking with the little girl and that the little girl was specifically wearing red rubber boots with white polka dots. Um, And it it got really, really emotional when he said, the the Crown said, is there anything that really stood out about the little girl? And he said that she had been crying. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's really hard to hear that. And it was very difficult for Sarah and Talia's family to hear that. And, And there was barely a dry eye in the room because this is you're you're hearing about uh the little girl who uh would later be found dead in this case right so um, it's really really difficult yeah it's one of those stories too where it it sounds to me as though the crown is sort of laying out a a chronological order of what's happening and in this case and in today's uh testimony by the sounds of it is there is a laying out of what is essentially the final moments of talia's life 
uh, through the eyes of a complete stranger. Yeah, and you know, I, I know I, I may have said this yesterday, but it's hard because for many of the family members of Sarah and Talia, this is the first time that they're hearing these details because many of them weren't allowed to be in the courtroom because, you know, you can't be in the courtroom before you testify. And some of them had to testify or be on standby possibly to testify. Um, so they're, they're hearing this evidence as the general public learns about this as we're reporting it. Um, so it's just, it's really, really difficult for sure. What are we expecting over the next couple of days in terms of other witnesses and, and that kind of thing, Nancy? Well, because it's a jury trial, we can never promote which witnesses are coming up next because we have to talk about the evidence as it comes out in front of the jury. So the Crown is really careful. They haven't provided a witness list to us, so we don't... um, It doesn't get leaked out what's happening in case something changes last minute. And you just definitely want uh, the jury to be learning um, things from the Crown as the Crown presents it. So um, I can tell you we're day three into what is expected to be a a three-week trial, but um, it seems like everything is moving um, quite quickly uh, and on schedule right now. It's good to have that context, and that's why I ask the question, is sometimes you are given that witness list and sometimes you're not as a, as a reporter. Definitely, and, yeah. Uh, one of those things when you get, uh, when we're talking about transparency in media, I like to ask those questions as well. So, Well, and Joe, I have to say that this is unique. Um, excuse me. In this case, you know, we saw it in the Garland case. We saw it um, in a lot of the, the most high-profile cases in recent years. There's a lot of people that come to court mm-hmm. and they are tweeting. They have maybe a, a group on Facebook that they're they're talking to and tweeting to or, you know, um, bloggers. Mm-hmm. So non-traditional uh, media that are also in these courtrooms. And we don't know who they are. We're all accredited media. We have court passes and, you know, we're allowed to be reporting from the courtroom. But one of the things... Uh, that's tricky is there are people who are are not following necessarily the same rules. Um, so the Crown has been very careful to, to lay out the rules. There's certain publication bans in this case um, that everyone has to follow, whether you're a member of the public or, you know, an accredited media journalist like myself. Mm-hmm. So I think that's part of it is that the Crown wants to be extra careful um, because this is a jury trial, and you you definitely have to be extra careful when it is a jury hearing um, the evidence. It is one thing that I, I've noticed, and probably the first case that really that stuck out to me would have been the Jeremy Steinke uh, murder trial in Medicine Hat, where there were a lot of conflicting reports based off of what you were allowed and not allowed to publish based off the fact that the co-accused was a, a 12-year-old girl in the case. So, um, true. Yeah, it's, and that's it, the time of Nexopia in MySpace. I mean, look how yeah. much we've... Uh, <laughs> evolved in social media with Twitter and Facebook. Exactly. uh, Things have come a long way since then, for sure. Speaking of social media, you can follow Nancy and all the developments in court at Nancy Hickst. I will also be, uh, I'll tweet at her as well in case you're looking at it at Calgary today. Uh, Nancy, thanks for the update again. Thanks so much, Joe. Earlier in the spring, Aaron and I picked up a puppy. Her name is Izzy. She's a nine-month-old retriever cross with a horse is how I like to joke about it. She, there's moments where I think, man, she is smart. She's picking up on things that I'm saying and she gets it. And then the very next minute she does the exact opposite and makes me think that she's the dumbest dog on the face of the planet, which made me think 
do pets actually understand what we're saying or do they just understand the tones or what is it? So we welcome to the program author and professional pet sitter, Laura Vorier. Uh, Laura, thanks so much for the time today. Oh, I'm so happy to be on. Thanks. Let me ask that question right off the hop. Do dogs understand, and especially puppies, the words that are coming out of my mouth, or do they just understand that I'm saying something and the tone might give them the yay or the nay? Well, I think for especially puppies, they're just trying to figure out our language. So I think it's our tone and intonation and how we say something that they put it together, yes or no, you're happy or you're not happy, because they don't understand the language just yet. They are learning it. Is repetition the key to having a good puppy or a good dog? Absolutely, and that's the, that's the biggest challenge I come up with is um, as a trainer, you know, I can train the dog, and I do the same thing with the dog, and the hand movements, and the same sound, and I do it again, and again, and again, and consistency is key, and then the owner comes home and says, I'm going to do something completely different, and that leads to confusion, and when the dog is confused, it's just going to go its own way. I'm curious if breed matters, one, and two, does it become that much more difficult when it's a mixed breed or a true mutt? I think mixed breeds and true mutts, in my experience, tend to be smarter. Sometimes you get those purebreds who are even overbred, if you will, and they're bred for looks. Um, and they're not that bright. So uh, I think you're probably lucky in having, you know, a hybrid or even a mix like that because they tend to be a little, in my experience, now I'm sure people will say, oh, my breed's so smart. But you know what? I have a very mixed dog, and he's, well, he's brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and and when it doesn't hurt that your your dog also has a a professional pet sitter on the side. When it comes to pet sitting, though, and you're, you bring over your puppy or your dog for the first time or that, is it important to communicate with the pet sitter, hey, here are the cues that we think they've learned so that they're not confused by what the pet sitter is trying to do as well? Oh, yeah. It, it's good to lay down some foundational rules and, and cues because dogs, just like human children, they thrive on boundaries. So you can't say, okay, you can't come up on the couch, but then the pet sitter comes over and you're out of town and the pet sitter says, hey, come on up here. It's fine. It's fine. And once you let him on the couch, you know, there's no turning back, you know? No, absolutely not. Final question for you on this topic because it's just, it's funny to me is the the idea that a dog can actually understand the words that are coming out of my mouth is it sim is it better to go simple early or can you go you know is there a limit to the number of i'll say the the number of uh, words that you use in a sentence to to give a command i think you should keep it short and and um, very succinct a especially when you are training your dog, you know, sit down, stay, come. Um, No, (laughs) you know, I think these are the best learning words for dogs because they get it. They get it right away. And as they get older and as they get smarter, let's face it, you know, puppies, they're, they're like babies. They're dog babies. They don't know anything. So as they get older and they get used to the household and they become familiar with the rules and you, and then I think you could spring on the two and three word commands and you could ask more of them. 
For sure. A fun conversation to have with your puppy or with another human, for that matter. Laura Warrior is an author and professional pet sitter. Laura, thank you again. thanks again so much for the time today. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Like I said, a little bit of fun to end uh, your Wednesday. This is Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. Thanks so much for listening to the Calgary Today podcast. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, and tune in. When you do, don't forget to write the show and leave a comment. Until next time, my friends.